Take your Bible tonight, if you would, and uh, open to the book of Psalms and chapter 56. Psalms in chapter, <clears throat> chapter number 56. And when you find your place, let's stand together. <clears throat> I'm expecting to see the rest of my grandchildren tonight, just so you know. <laughs> Praise the Lord. Psalms 56. <clears throat> to the chief musician upon Jonathalem Rehokim, Miktam of David, when the Philistines took him in Gath. Be merciful unto me, O God, for man would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresseth me. Mine enemies would daily swallow me up, for they be many that fight against me, O thou most high. What time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. In God I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. Every day they rest my words. All their thoughts are evil against me, or pardon me, are against me for evil. They gather themselves together. They hide themselves. They mark my steps when they wait for my soul. Shall they escape by iniquity? In thine anger cast down the people, O God. Thou tellest my wanderings. Put thou my tears into thy bottle. Are they not in thy book? When I cry unto thee, then shall mine enemies turn back. For this I know, for God is for me. In God will I praise his word. In the Lord will I praise his word. In God have I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. Thy vows are upon me, O God. I will render praises unto thee. For thou hast delivered my soul from death. Wilt thou not deliver my feet from falling, that I may walk before God in the light of the living? Let's pray together tonight. Father, thank you so much for our time. Thank you for your word and just your goodness to us, God. We'll attempt at some moment tonight during this message to, to remind all here of your unrelenting, overwhelming goodness. Lord, often in the midst of the journey as we walk in endeavoring, I trust to walk a single path and, and to follow Jesus in all of that. In Jesus Christ alone. I know, Lord, that sometimes the journey overtakes us and the weight of things bear down upon us. The things that shouldn't happen happen and things that should in our mind don't. And all of these things are an attempt to get us off of the path of following you and your dear son to discourage us. So, Lord, I pray tonight, before it's all said and done, that we would learn how to navigate through the smoke of the difficulties and discouragements and unfairness of this life and faithfully and robustly follow Jesus. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you tonight for standing. <clears throat> I'd like to tell you tonight that I have a long introduction and a short message. <clears throat> That's not true, but I do have a long introduction, so that might help you out with something. When we read this psalm together, I read intentionally what we'll just call together tonight the heading of this psalm. You might call them that. You know that several of the Psalms have them. You know that, uh, I don't remember the number. I knew it once. I don't remember it now. But the number of Psalms that have a heading of some sort. And there's a variety of them. Some of them just say things like a Psalm of David. Or uh, some of them are more elaborate like this one. What I do want you to know tonight is that those headings are not... Um, uh, they're not uh, modern-day editorial editions. The headings that you read in your Bible and the book of Psalms are a part of the preserved text as we have it today. 
They're right in there. In fact, if you were to look into the Hebrew Bible, you'd find out that what we read as this heading is really verse 1. And that uh, we're, uh, from that point on, the rest of the way through that psalm, our English Bible is a verse, it would seem, off from the Hebrew Bible, or whichever one you want to say is off. But there's really no difference except that this verse in our Bible is unnumbered. Now here's why I tell you that, because I I fear often that we uh, relegate these uh, uh, these parts of the inspired text to sort of unknown la-la land. That's a very technical term for things we can't figure out, we just pass right by. And we write them off, not inaccurately maybe, but not specifically, often to like this. Well, that's just musical instruction for people. And and I agree that that's, there are some musical instructions in some of these headings, not all of them. Uh, and we'll try to talk about that in just a second. But I just want you to understand that that if they're here... They're here for our edification. They're here uh, for our use. They're here as a part of the text that you and I are responsible for even. And they're also profitable to us in understanding what we would consider to be the body of the rest of the psalm. I trust you'll understand that tonight too. But I would encourage you as you read and study the psalms in your life, this is just extra for you, it won't cost anything more tonight, but uh, but I uh, but I would encourage you to, to go ahead and, and read the headings and begin to at least ponder before God, for what reason is it there? And what can I discern from that. This one does a lot of things for us. The first thing it does is it describes the circumstance about which or at which in which this psalm was written. It says it there to the chief musician upon Jonath Elim Rehokam, Miktam of David, when the Philistines took him in Gath. That's an actual event. We'll uh, look at it maybe in just a few minutes. I don't know. You probably know it well. But it's when David begins to run from Solomon, or Saul, pardon me. And Saul's attempting to kill him. No, no right or good reason. There's an evil spirit that is stirred up in him. And Saul has thrown a couple of javelins at him and, and missed. And, and now, I mean, uh, Saul is literally, by the time First Samuel 21, he's just really set his face to exterminate David. And David is really ending up very shortly in this place where for the next several years, the armies of Israel are chasing him and a band of men that gather themselves to him all over the countryside. It's like one of the great historical games of cat and mouse and God wins. Amen. But it's a difficult time there. And that uh, that uh, situation, David goes to Gath running from Saul. It's kind of funny. In fact, instead of reading it, let me just remind you of it tonight. But if we were to read it, we'd find out that David, uh, running from Saul, goes uh, to the priest uh, at Nob, and he goes and says, do you have anything here to eat? And ends up eating the showbread. And then he says, do you have any weapons here? And um, uh, the priest says, well, we only have the sword of Goliath that you took from him. You can have that if you want it. And so David straps that sword onto his side. And really for the only time, if we read 1 Samuel 21, really the only time that I can find in Scripture, we read twice in that passage that David ran in fear. He ran in fear for his life from Saul, and he ends up running in fear again from Abimelech, the king of Gath. Listen, this psalm is written at a time when David's life is turned upside down. He was, he had really done nothing wrong. There's no accusation that is of any uh, validity that's, that gets cast at David. Uh, his life has taken really almost a big pyramid, if you will. And let me remind you that David was uh, the youngest of his father's sons. And, and he, by all accounts we have, was a faithful, loyal a man of character, young man of character, I think loved the Lord long before we were ever introduced to David from what I can see. And David's just out there minding his business one day, uh, tending to his father's sheep. And I will even say this, you might disagree, but I don't think you could uh, do it from the word of God, that David seemed to have no designs on anything that God hadn't already given him. 
They seem to just be satisfied keeping the sheep of his father. And you know that uh, that God had uh, set aside Saul from uh, being the king because of his disobedience. And and you know that uh, that Samuel was sent to the house of Jesse, David's father, to anoint the king. And, and you, I mean, you know the whole story. They, David's not there. And it goes from the oldest, big, handsome, strapping brother, you know, probably born in Montana. And, uh, and uh, you know, all of the, those, all the way down to the, the, the second to the last one. And none of them are the right guy. And they're asked, is there not another? And they say, well, there's, you know, there's the little guy. Well, go get him. And David, I can't imagine what it was like when one of his brothers came running out and said, you need to hurry up. They want you in the house. I know what it was like for me. If I ever heard those words from one of my siblings, I knew I was in trouble. I don't know what David's mind was, but I kind of think walking back to the house, he was like, what did I do? What did I do? What did I do? What did I do? (laughs) And he got there and the man of God standing there with a horn of oil and his dad and the man of God says, God chose you to be the next king of Israel. I love what it appears David did. He's anointed there that day and goes back to the sheep. But David's life really begins to change. And it's not very long. 1 Samuel 16, to to a few events, he ends up in the palace playing the harp for the king and and trying to soothe him. And uh, and then he begins to, uh, you know, uh, lead a little bit. Battle war breaks out in uh, 1 Samuel 17 with the Philistines. And, uh, you know, it's the whole David and Goliath thing. David is not there. He's sent back to his father's house. His dad sends him out to the battlefield. Probably not something I never contemplated with my son, but sends him out to take bread and check on the brothers and uh, bring uh, gifts to the captain and and he gets out there, and of course the giant comes out. You remember all of this, right? And goes, if you can beat me, you win. If I beat you, then we're going to, you know, kill you all and take your money. And, um, and, and so uh, David walks out there, the slingshot, and the best piece of armor you could ever wear in your life. A good, holy God. And David kills Goliath that day. Well... I'm not convinced David did. I'm fairly convinced God did. David just got the awesome role to cut his head off with his own sword. But David began to grow in esteem. I mean, his life had gone from nowhere to the palace, and and now he becomes a national hero. So you get to 1 Samuel 18, and and, uh, he's now leading in and out the armies with and then without Saul. Men are going to battle, they're, they're risking their lives, and they're putting all of the confidence for their life in the leadership of David. And David seems to just be taking it all in stride. And God is, let's say, blessing him, working in through him. I believe that David's heart didn't change in all of that because he was a man after God's own heart. He didn't get lifted up with himself. He just, just kept serving God. Until finally they come back from battle in 1 Samuel 18 and, and the women are singing those war songs and, and they begin to sing this one. Uh, Saul is slain his thousands and David is slain his ten thousands and Saul's beside him and that man turns green. He is now filled with envy, jealousy. And it begins for that reason alone to begin to uh, attempt to extinguish the life of David. It's, it's like David's life took a big turn and, and it was going where you never thought it would go. And just when you thought, man, this is really good, all of a sudden life goes pow, and he's running for his life. Not a single friend left. Jonathan is still his friend, but there can't be any more communication. It's too risky. You know, they have the deal in the field where they shoot the arrow. And David realizes at that moment he is absolutely all alone. It's really a pretty difficult place. He runs and gets the sword of Goliath of Gath. And he's running completely out of fear. 
So let me tell you what fear does to you. It makes you stupid. Can I say that? Watch. Big sword, Goliath of Gath, strapped onto my little body. And I walk into the city of Gath with the sword of their champion, whom I killed, and say, hey, I need a little help here. <laughs> not, 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 not recommended that you make decisions out of fear in your life. Come on. And so David ends up there, and they're like, uh-huh. So he has to begin to act like a crazy man, and he, you know, lets spit drop in his beard and scratches on the wall, scrabbles on the wall, and finally they, they basically uh, capture him, it says, because this says when, he, uh, when, David, when the Philistines took him in Gath, that's the circumstance. So they didn't just say, hey, why don't you hang out here, crazy man, and we'll give you crumbs from our table. They took him into custody somehow, and David escapes from them. And ends up in the cave of Adullam, 100% alone. That's the circumstance. This psalm is written in that circumstance, probably in the cave of Adullam, my opinion, but concerning what went on there. And we learn that in that heading of this psalm. We learn this also, that it's a particular kind of psalm. It's called a miktam psalm. There are six of them in Scripture. It's a little bit obscure, uh, the idea of what is a miktam, but I'll tell you what uh, really uh, what I believe and, and hope you can do something with it. The word miktam is related to a couple of words. It's, uh, it's maybe something that's not really used anymore, but, but the words that are, it's kind of related to are the idea of gold or uh, value, preciousness, and it's uh, kind of the same root of gold, and then of things that are engraved. And the idea of engraving. And people will write a number of things about this. They'll say that they were probably engraved on uh, golden plates. I don't believe that. I don't have any reason to believe that. It seems like conjecture to me. And, and uh, some will say, though, well, they were engraved on the, on the uh, walls of the caves where David had hidden when he ran from Saul. And, and because most of them are related to that circumstance. And I don't even really believe that. I suppose it's possible. But I'll explain to you in a moment why I don't really think that's primarily it. Here, here's what... Uh, miktam really is, is it's something that has great value uh, that's to be kept uh, uh, permanently. That's the idea of it. And that's the engraving. So that whenever you need that thing in your life, whenever you need that, that truth in this case, or that marker, that it's there and it's available for you. It's the idea of a steel. I don't know if you uh, would be familiar with that. No, I'm not, not talking about the flower kind. I'm talking about the engravings. See, in... in um, in uh, uh, archaeology, they find these things. In fact, the first written record of David being king in Israel at the time he was in Jerusalem is on something called the Dan Steel. And archaeologists in the, in the city of Dan, as they excavated it, they found these uh, monuments. It's the best way I can think of to describe them. And they would be in stone, and, and they have, there are several of them there uh, throughout history, particularly in the ancient Near East, but, uh, but uh, they have engraved on them uh, things that are going on at that time, just as sort of markers in history. And they're on, on stone so that they'll be kept and permanent and that they're engraved so it doesn't just get wiped out. So it's something that said, hey, listen, this is a marker that we need to remember something about in our life. There's a historical event. And I'm telling you, you can just find them all over the place. Not only there, but, but I hope you can get sort of the picture of what, of what this, this steel is in archaeology. We use the same thing today. To mark something. Have you ever been to a veteran's cemetery? If you go to a veteran's cemetery, you'll notice that every tombstone or headstone is made up the same way, essentially. And then they have a rank and a name and a date and a symbol. We call those hallowed grounds. We know they're hallowed grounds because... There are, there is a steel, something that's to last and remind us. There for every person that served our nation and perished. 
Now, Mick, Tom, if I could have you to just take this. The Mick, Tom, is in our life a marker that God gives to us. They're given during the time that David is going through this ridiculously hard time. And God gives us these truths about himself so that we can put them in place in our life permanently. We can engrave them upon our hearts and minds so that as we, as we have these things happen to us, you know, if you've been alive for very long, you know this, that in life you get more than one difficult time. There are lots of times that circumstances, they just come and, and you can't really figure out what comes next. Well, duh. And you, you don't necessarily know what to do. And here's the problem. As followers of Christ, what these things do, what these circumstances and times do, is that they threaten to push us off the path of following Jesus Christ. And so these mictoms, if I could just, just give you this maybe to, to keep, that really what they do is they're markers on that path. So that when the smoke is thick and the fog is heavy and times are tough and everything seems darkness around you, instead of getting off the path of following the Lord, you can navigate from attribute of God, truth about God, that are erected in your life as monuments to who he is. And instead of ending up in the ditch of disobedience, you can walk in the victory even though the times are harder than you could ever handle on your own. Miktam of David. So here's the whole heading. To the chief musician, upon Janoth el Emre Hokum, Miktam of David, God gave this, David engraves it. When he was running from Saul, and the Philistines took him in Gath. One more quick thing that I want you to know. There are a number, I want to say 70-some or something like that, of the psalms that start with this, to the chief musician. And it is this phrase why we generally uh, dismiss these to the bin of musical things we can't understand. But, uh, but it's important that you would understand it's, it's, it, it is written, or this psalm, was, this psalm was prepared to be delivered to the, to the song leader, to the chief musician, in the temple and in the tabernacle out of the Levites, David really instituted this, but he put in, in charge uh, a Levite of the, of the music in these things. There was a, a chief musician that was in charge of arranging all of those things. We do similar things in our churches today. And there are certain psalms that we're told that they're given directly. They're intended to be given directly to that chief musician. Now, I think there are different reasons why. But in them or with them, he often gives some instruction about that psalm musically. In this case, it says this, to the chief musician upon John Othel Emre Hokum. Perfectly clear. So you read a couple of forms. In fact, if you look at 50, verse, chapter 57 quickly, I, I, I don't want to get down in the weeds, but I'm going to, so you might as well enjoy it while we're here, okay? If you look at uh, Psalms 57, the heading says this, to the chief musician, same phrase, then comma, alta sheath. But look back at 56, it says, to the chief musician upon John Othel and Mary Holcomb. Do you see the difference there? The difference is that, I guess it's a preposition, uh, on or upon. And so you'll read some of these headings that are like 57 that say to the chief musician, comma, and, and I would tell you that those are something to do maybe with instrumentation most often or, or disposition. The alta sheath means do not destroy. Don't, don't let this go away. It should always be a part. But when you read the ones that are uh, John Othel Emre Hokum upon, what follows upon is some sort of instruction that's more musical. Now, sometimes although I can't think of one, but everybody I read says that it might be instrumentation. But often what they are is mood. This instruction is an instruction of musical mood. Again, not uncommon. We still do it today. Um, so 
I know we have lots of musicians here. One of them that's here, uh, be brave and tell me, what does the word andante mean? No musicians? You all are a bunch of fakers? Well, you do a good job. Well, it means like with haste, with speed, or, uh, you know, urgency maybe in the music. It's a mood. And so when you would pick up a piece of music, you know, being musical is about more than notes, okay? I mean, you can make notes on a tin can to some degree, but it's about mood and about flow and all, I mean, all those things that make it music, not just notes that come to your ears and make you go like, yeah, that could have been good. Well, that's what this is. And so we have a, a Largo. Musicians, Largo. Kimberly, Largo. Slow. She's hiding back there. She teaches piano. It means slow, right? And sort of like sort of mellow. It's just mood. Everybody got this? So here's the mood here. To the chief musician upon Jonathan Hamry Holcomb. This is interesting. Jonathan Hamry Holcomb is three words together. Jonathan is dove. Elaim means distant or far away, and Rehokim means silent. It's a mood. And David says, when you, when you play this psalm, here's how the mood I want you to be thinking about is. That here's this dove, weak and alone, far out of the place it should be, so that in fear, it stops singing. Let me ask you a question. What is the purpose of a dove? I mean, what's their great contribution? Their song. We use their image to talk about peace. There's that. Why? Well, because their song you take away a song from a dove, then the dove is really nothing but a quiet magpie or something. I don't know. They've lost their purpose. See if you can get this mood. To the chief musician, with the, with the mood of an, of an innocent, really weak, low on the totem pole of animals, bird, that's far away from where it belongs, is absolutely alone, and because of that circumstance, no longer is able to fulfill its purpose. That's a mood. And that's the mood of this song. Written in this circumstance, when David is far from where he should be, he's all alone and he's in fear and trembling and he's lost his focus on the very thing and access to the very thing God called him to do. Verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God. For man would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresseth me. Mine enemies would daily swallow me up. For they be many that fight against me, O thou most high. David begins this psalm with a prayer. And it's a prayer of fear. There's no mistaking that from the words and everything that's gone on. And he's calling out to God for mercy, for God to, to do that which he doesn't deserve and to keep him from that which, you know, is going on as I've got to have mercy upon me because I'm telling you that everyone that I know is against me. And every day it's relentless. I mean, just in a couple of uh, phrases in the psalm, he says this, for man, uh, uh, for man would swallow me up. He fighting daily oppresseth me. Mine enemies would daily swallow me up. 
He says, God, I really need you to step in somehow into my life now because, uh, because I have all of these enemies and, and all of them. It's just constantly relentless. I'm alone. They are many and they never quit coming after me. And I'm scared. I'm fearful for my life. I don't see any way that I live through this. I, 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 it's just not, it's not numerically possible. Uh, Saul's got uh, seven or eight thousand soldiers, just the sort of ready guard that was uh, kept in, uh, in the capital. And, and, and there they are, and they're following his commandment, and they're coming after me, and there's only me. And I'm telling you, I'm hiding in a cave now, and I really don't know that I can go out of this cave and exist. God, I need your mercy. You think that this life has become uncertain, fearful, hopeless, all of the things that you struggle with. And you begin to respond to circumstances in fear. David realizes something that I hope you will that you cannot live your life constantly running from circumstances in fear. And if the way that you deal with circumstances and hard things that come along is constantly fear, you're ultimately going to end up having lost all of your purpose, hiding in a cave, expecting to die at any moment. And David realized one thing, live or die, live or die, he can't go on like this. So he makes a decision, in fact the decision I'm going to ask you to make tonight, and the decision is in verse 3, and he says this, what time I am afraid, I will trust in thee. You know what that decision is? I'm done running in fear. And I'm going to start walking in faith. That I'm going to trust God. And that every time I recognize fear, no, 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 I'm not talking about getting into a hole and then saying, God, I'm in a hole, get me out. That every time I recognize fear beginning to have its effect, its impact on my life, I'm going to stop right there and say this, no way, I'm not running in fear of circumstances or people or whatever any longer. What I'm going to do is I'm going to walk by faith in God. What time I'm afraid. I will trust in you. It's a decision that he makes that that God really mercifully relieves David of the bondage of fear by reminding him of God's promises in his life and of the goodness of God that he might have faith in God. In fact, verse 4, if you would look at it with me, is the refrain or the chorus of this, of this psalm. And it says this, in God I will praise his word. In God I have put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto my, to me. He makes a decision. Listen, uh, what time I'm afraid I'll trust in you. And let me tell you what I'm trusting in. Because of his word, because of his word, I trust in God. I praise him and I trust him. I'm not going to be afraid anymore because God's word is true and, and, and God will cause it to become true. And so I have placed all of my trust in God uh, through his word. And now I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. Boy, we need to figure this out pretty quick. Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. We know that, right? But what is David talking about here? I mean, David doesn't have what you and I have as far as the word of God, right? But there is something, some promise of God that he's relying upon here. And you might say, well, preacher, he's obviously relying upon the, upon the law and the books of Moses. And they have promises of God in him. I agree with that. The Abrahamic covenant's in there. But that's not what he's relying on. I really don't think David's sitting there hiding in the cave of Adullam, uh, you know, really making a decision in his life for faith versus fear and saying this, boy, it'll be great someday when we own all this land. In fact, can I just say this to you? I don't think hope is that generic. I think the truth of the matter is, is that that if you're really going to walk by faith instead of fear, that you have to be uh, in the word of God in such a way uh, that when you encounter things in your life, what you know about God is not general. 
It's specific promises and truths about God. We, we got to get past this idea, you know, that uh, somehow we're, it's all going to be okay. We even use Bible verses wrong to substantiate the idea that no matter what goes wrong in anyone's life, that all things work together for good. You know, that won't take you out of the cave. That'll discourage you because it doesn't always work out that way. You got to get the whole truth there before you start trying to rest. No, no, would you understand this? David wasn't uh, counting on some generalized promise of God. He was counting on a specific promise of God that God had said this and David could trust in it. And so now instead of running in fear, he could walk by faith in God. I know what promise. Do you? Think about it for a moment. Let me tell you the promise. The promise that David is resting on is the day that God sent Samuel, yes, sir. anointed him with oil, and said, Thus saith the Lord, yep. I have chosen you to be the next king of Israel. And you know, when David began to bank on that promise, he's no longer has fear of death. You want to know why? Because God said, I'm going to be the king. And there's never been a time in the history of this world that they have ever coronated a dead dude. You don't like my English and you're appropriate not to. That was really bad, but I liked it. Because it's never happened. And it never will. I mean, it's not what happens at funerals. We talked about funerals the other day in Sunday school. But never does it go, da 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 da, da you know, butter. I don't know. It's not what happens. And David knew this. If God was God and God was good and God could be trusted, that Saul wasn't going to kill him in some dark cave or some desert place uh, around Israel because one day he's going to be sitting on the throne of Israel as the servant of the Most High God. Well, time I'm afraid I will trust in you. And church, we better, uh, we better get beyond the generic ideas of God because if we're going to be able to erect something that matters in our life and that we can go to time and again about God, it had better be something that's really true about God and that God actually said to us. And we better get into our Bibles and we better meditate and we better memorize and we better live because when the lights go out, we need to know exactly where God's at and who he is. So David comes to this point of decision based upon truth, sings the chorus, but then something else happens. Look at verse 5. Every day they rest my words. All their thoughts are against me for evil. They gather themselves together, they hide themselves, they mark my steps. When they wait for my soul, shall they escape by iniquity in thine anger? Cast down the people, O God. Now look at me. We often live under this misguided idea that if we say, I trust you, God, everything is good now. My wife and I, when we first took the church in Jerome, Idaho, we had a lady in the church She's still in the church, I'm, I, I believe, but she was really struggling with her marriage and uh, lots of stuff. And it seemed like every service after church, she'd be like, can I talk to you? Can I talk to you? And we'd say, yeah, okay, that'd be great. And, uh, you know, we wanted to help. And we just, I mean, we invested, I'd say, a lot of hours trying to get to the point where she would she would begin to draw, and I got, could I, could I say this to you? When your pastor tells you that, you that you need to be in your Bible more and in prayer more, it's not because he's giving you a formula to make life smooth out. It's because you got to see God for who he is. And so we said this to her, listen, just, just let God be God and, 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 you know, begin to get into his word. We gave her some things and, and spend some time in prayer. And she, okay, yes, I, I will, I will, I will. And I, it was probably a week or maybe two later that she said, can I talk to you after church? We said, yes. And she said, listen, I've been praying for two weeks and reading my Bible for two weeks and nothing has changed in my husband. That'll discourage you. You listen to me tonight. 
That just because you come to a point of faith does not mean that suddenly the music mood changes. And everything turns around. The sky's a little bluer. The grass is a little greener. You're a little taller and thinner. All of those good things. Doesn't mean that. And here in, in, in this psalm, after David comes to this point of decision and begins to erect a place in his life where what time I'm afraid I'll trust in you, the next thing he says is, but nothing changed in my circumstances at all. I mean, do you see that there? Verse 5 and 6, they say they gather themselves together. They, they hide themselves. They mark my steps when they, when they wait for my soul. Uh, shall they escape by iniquity and thine anger cast down the people, O God? Hey, listen, nothing's really changed. I still need you, God. I need you to deal with them. And, and, and listen, uh, the, my circumstance is as unrelenting as it was before. They were trying to kill me daily then. They're trying to kill me daily now. You know the difference now is not David's circumstances. It's David's heart. Listen closely to me. When you get into these things and you come to God and you begin to say and make some decisions about walking by faith and walking in the word, your expectation should not be that everything will change. The expectation should be that God is trying to change you in the midst of your circumstances. He's trying to grow you. He's trying to get you to be more uh, uh, more um, needful of him, more more dependent upon him, more living by faith. He's not trying to make your life be like happy days are here again. He's trying to make you be more like Jesus. A man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. So well then, preacher, what's the where's the where's the help? Well, I believe it's in in the rest of what David says here. Because after he describes the unrelenting nature of his circumstances, what he begins to do in verse 8, and really in verse 8 and 9, he describes, listen to this, the unrelenting goodness of God. And he says this in verse number 8. He says, listen, thou tellest my wanderings, put thou my tears into thy bottle, are they not in thy book? He says, listen, God, I, I understand who you are. And even though my circumstance hasn't changed, I'm really not, I'm really not running by fear anymore, and I'm even not alone anymore, because this is what I know. Where my steps go, you've recorded. You tell my wanderings, and you write them in your book. There's never a place in my life, God, that I can go to, no darkness or valley that I can walk through, that I'm there, and it just is all forgotten. Hey, listen, there's no injustice in your life that God doesn't have recorded, and it's written down and says, you know what? This shouldn't be this way, but it is that way. That no matter what's going on in your life, God is there in the midst of what's going on in your life. Hey, 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 stop it. That's not a theory. He's not just there, but he's paying attention to the details of your life. Say, why would God let me go through some of these things? Because he's trying to grow you. Because he wants you to realize that his grace is sufficient no matter what's going on in your life. That he is a God filled with unrelenting goodness. And that no matter where you are, he's got this thing in his hand. He's got his eyes on you. And you're never going somewhere. No, no, no. He's not going like, aha, I'm going to get this guy. He's saying, I'm here. I've got this. And you're not alone. That's right. You tell my wanderings. It's better than that, though. Because not only does he talk about recording and telling his wanderings, but he says this, put thou my tears into thy bottle. It's really a request that I believe God already was performing. What's in view here, and I'm sure you're familiar with it, but it's something called a phylactery or a tear bottle. And tear bottles were used as a part of grieving and mourning in these times, let's say in, in David's time. When someone would die, they, their loved ones would take these tear bottles and, and when they would mourn and weep for them, they'd catch their tears in these bottles. And when they would have their burial, they would 
you know, close that bottle and they would bury it with that person saying this, you know what? Wherever you're going, my, my heart, my grief, it's there that I love you deeply and that I mourn with you during these things. It was a symbol of their passion and love and the bearing of their grief of their loved ones. But they were in use long beyond Bible times. They were in use in our country, might still be, though I don't know uh, of it exactly. In the Civil War, one of the times, there were different uh, sort of uses in eras, let's say. In fact, in the Victorian period, uh, the, when someone would die, uh, their loved ones would uh, catch their tears in a bottle, and they would place them on the mantle in their home. And when the tears dried up, then the period of mourning for that would be over. There's really a unity, if you will, in their mind, and a, and a mourning uh, and an expression of their great uh, care and love for this person. In the Civil War, the Union soldiers in particular, when they went off to war, their wives wore a a tear bottle and kept it. And when they would miss them and mourn for them uh, and cry over them on the battlefield, they would catch their tears. And when they came home, if they came home, they would present these to their husband and say this, listen, I know you're going through through the fog and heat of battle, but I want you to know there wasn't a moment that I wasn't walking with you and that I wasn't holding you up and that I wasn't loving you. It's an idea of expressing and carrying grief. Dear Christian, get over the idea that you're Superman. And know that there are many things that come into your life that don't include the death of a loved one that grief is appropriate for. Where's the weeping over our sin? where we've been taken into a desert place by the temptation of an enemy. We've been buffeted at the will of one who's stronger than us. And yet no grief. Because here's the thing. Your God is so good that whatever grief you go through, he bears your grief. He catches your tears in his bottle. They're a memorial to him. He doesn't just forget. You know, it's, it's hard to say in a crowd like this, but God doesn't always act like a Baptist. He actually remembers. He bears your grief. David is alone and running. And he says this, God, I'm, I'm done being manipulated by running and out of fear of circumstances. And I'm going to trust in you. What am I going to trust in your promise? But I'm going to trust in this God that no matter how dark the way, your goodness is more unrelenting than my negative circumstances. That as harsh and consistently after me as my enemy is, you are that much and more bearing my grief, marking my steps, walking with me, and carrying the things that I can't carry. And he's counting on the unrelenting goodness of God to be sufficient as he anticipates the coming of the promise of God. Faith in the place of fear. No longer running because you don't know tomorrow, but walking and standing because you know the one who inhabits tomorrow. And he walks with you and he marks your way and he bears your grief and he, and he fulfills his promises and never leaves you wandering in the battle without his leadership. The unrelenting goodness of God. Erect in your life tonight, church, by faith, absolute confidence in the unrelenting goodness of God. That when the temptation gets more than you can take, God in his goodness has made a way to escape it. When the grief is heavier than you have strength to go through, God in his goodness bears it beside you. 
When circumstances are so unjust and so unfair and so unreasonable that you just want to uh, just make a fist and lash out, remember this, that God has already given you the end and the victory and that faith is the victory that overcomes the world. And go to this place every time. Continue on the path of obedience by coming to a place that reminds you that no matter what it looks like out there, that our God, your God, that his goodness will long outlast the unjust, difficult things in your life. David came to the point of walking by faith, not fear, because he became completely dependent on the unrelenting goodness of God. We live in days of absolute uncertainty and abject failure too often in our churches and in our lives. And you know what you need tonight? You need a marker in your life, placed there by God, about God, that you would come to. And tonight you'd begin to give him praise like David did and bow before him and worship him because of who he is and what he does. And that marker should say on it, trust in the unrelenting goodness of your God. My grace is sufficient for you. You should stop running and you should stop fighting. You should stop worrying and you should stop fretting and you should start trusting in the unrelenting goodness of your God. You ready to do that tonight? Truly tonight we cast our burdens and trust our God. Stand with me. Father, please help us tonight. Help us to have no hesitation to responding in humility and worship to you, erecting in our life this monument and choosing by faith to walk in faith and not be manipulated by fear of our circumstances. Help us, Father, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Altars open to you tonight as the piano plays. We have far too long been pushed around by our culture, much out of fear. Tonight's the night that we make a choice to walk in faith and not run in fear. Or if you're here tonight and you need spiritual help, you're just lost and overwhelmed, you could come down here and just say, man, I just need help. I'm telling you tonight, somebody take a Bible, walk into the closet of prayer with you that help you find that place in your life that you can always come to and erect a monument to the unrelenting goodness of God. And it's okay if you just take time worshiping him tonight.